Good evening. Good thing to be together in the name of the Lord this evening. There's, a, there's an interesting phenomenon that, that happened to, to me when our kids were infants. Uh, when they were, we have a four and a one-year-old now, but for both of the times when we had our first, our son, and then later our daughter, um, there was this strange occurrence that would happen to me in the nights where I, I would wake up in the morning after a night with a, with a baby incredibly well rested, and I would uh, turn over to my, my lovely wife and be smiling and rejoicing as our baby has slept through the night, and we got to have a, a wonderful night's sleep, and I would turn to her with a smile only to discover an angry frown. Uh, because what, what had actually happened is our kid didn't sleep through the night at all, but while the child's cry was heard by her instantly. I just <laughs> snored through the whole thing. And it's not that I am somehow an absentee father. As a matter of fact, I spent many a nights in our nursery holding our children as they tried to sleep to try to make sure my wife could sleep too. But the default seemed to be that she could always hear them before I could hear them very easily. And it wasn't that she had the monitor next to her face or that she was closer to the door or anything like that. It, it, it was something about just the, the cry of a child and the, the bond of a, of a mom. Uh, and we noticed when we had our second, it seems like I now hear my, my four-year-old before she will hear our four-year-old as a toddler, but yet she will hear our one-year-old before I will hear our one-year-old. So like the Lord has clearly given us our roles at night of who is to cover who in, in the event of some kind of emergency. But um, one of the interesting things that, that we discovered is that there's actually far more to it than just a hunch on my part. Did you know there's actually scientific studies that have been done on this? There was a, a study, a, a set of German researchers in the kind of mid-2000s that did this study about the cry language of babies and their mothers. And what they discovered is that instinctively, Babies will match the, the pitch, the, the cadence, the tonality of their moms in how they cry. And so there's actually a, a biological kind of connection for, for which babies will cry in such a way that is designed to alert the mom. And so you'll hear stories of mothers who can pick out their infant's cry in a room of maybe 50 babies with no trouble whatsoever. They can hear it above all of the noise Whereas in to many of us, 50 babies crying all sound the same. Right? Awful. But, but there's this, this beautiful kind of way that they could pick that out out of a room of people. And it's this wired way that God creates infants to naturally cry out in such a way that it brings their, their mother to them. They have a specific cry that God has embedded within them in order to garner the attention of their mom. And scripture tells us that as Christians, we, in much that same way, have been given, have a specific cry. And this cry is the words, Abba, Father. This is a, a, a cry that we are given in Scripture, a, a, a language, a way that we as Christians call out to our God, our Creator, our Sustainer, in such a way that He hears us above all the noise. And we're given that promise in Scripture. Here it is in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, our main text for tonight. Let's stand together as we read from the word of the Lord this morning. If you thought you were going to get off the hook without standing, just because it's Christmas Eve, you do not know me very well. This is Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Over the past four weeks, as we've been in this Advent series called What Child Is This? We have been looking at the, the names that, that Isaiah assigns to the Christ child to come in Isaiah 9, 6. And so for four weeks, we looked at those individual names of wonderful counselor, of mighty God, of everlasting father, and of prince of peace. And he gives us this promise of a child to be born upon whose shoulders the entirety of the governance of the world should rest. Right? And this promise that Isaiah makes of the child coming is in this time of deep turmoil and darkness of the world. They are suffering and struggling, and in some ways similar to today, in some ways far worse than today, but it's a time of darkness nonetheless. And Isaiah recounts their immense suffering and darkness and then moves to this promise of light. And the light will come in the form of a child to be born, a child who will shoulder the burden of ruling and reigning the people in a way that they have never seen before. A child who will usher in a new era, a new kingdom, one that will never end and one that will prosper. And so Isaiah 6 is this descriptor of, well, if we're going to get this ruler, what kind of child should it be? And so we looked at first, he is a child of wisdom and counselor. He is wonderful, awe-inspiring in the nature in which he gives us wisdom and counsels us towards our best good. He is a ruler who will not just rule with an iron fist and strength like a dictator, but rule with wisdom, with a deep and abiding wisdom and understanding of his people. He's a child who is mighty because he's God himself, right? We talked about it. The fullness of deity will dwell within the Christ child. He's a child who cares deeply about his people. How many rulers do we have today who want to be in power for the sake of power, but they really don't care about the people that they are in power over? Not so with the Christ child. He is the everlasting father figure. Whether you have a great dad that you can look up to or you grew up without a father or a poor example of a father, he obliterates all of that and he just becomes this everlasting, beautiful, perfect, caring, loving father figure who knows you more than you know yourself and knows what you need more than you know it yourself. And finally, as we looked at earlier this morning on this day, is a child who brings a deep and abiding and a comprehensive and an unprecedented peace to our lives and a peaceful calm and a stillness to our hearts. And so as we've discovered over these past few weeks, this is a child who we should be desperately awaiting, right? That's why we have Advent, because we are in waiting for the Christ to come. We wait and we keep anticipating and building up to this night where we get to celebrate that indeed he has come, he has been born. And as we know, this is the Christ whose birth we celebrate this night, the one who Isaiah prophesied. And so today we can rejoice in the fact that we have to us born the child, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And so what does any of Isaiah's proclamation in 9.6 have to do with Paul's words in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. Well, 
if Isaiah's prophecy lays out the message of hope, this Messiah to come, then Paul's words in Galatians give us a guide as to what our proper response might, might be. Right? It's the implication of the prophecy. Right? Isaiah said it's going to happen. Then it did happen. We celebrate that it has happened. And so Paul tells us, now that you have seen it happen, here is what this means and what the result of it is. So Paul's Galatians chapter 4 is kind of this debrief of the most beautiful thing to have ever occurred in the world, other than perhaps his crucifixion and the fact that he rose, which we will celebrate in just a few short months at Easter. And so that's what the point of Galatians 4 for us is. And the opening phrase tells us just a few things. First, God sent Christ as a baby when the fullness of time has come. That's another really fancy Bible way of saying God sent Jesus at the exact perfect right time. Right? Just the right time. Do we know when he's coming back? Yeah, exactly when he's coming back. At the right time. <laughs> at the perfect time. I don't know when that is. You don't know when that is. No one but the Father knows when that is. We hope it's before this service ends. Right? Well, maybe after the candlelight. We all like the candlelight. Let's do the candles and then have Christ come back. Right? But whatever time it is that he will return, it will be the perfect time. His redemptive plan for his people doesn't operate on some kind of a whim. Jesus came exactly when he should have come. Right? The 400 years of silence wasn't an accident. The entire redemptive story of the Old Testament wasn't an accident. He's not late to the party. It's not that God was trying to let earth continue on while he figured something out. Christ was born at the exact precise second on the exact precise day that he was meant to be born, and that is the fullness of the time that has come. That's what it means when Paul says that. Right? The second thing is that we learn is that God sent his son. Right? Jesus is the son of God, and so he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Paul is trying to drive that home because there was people that saw Jesus, worshipped Jesus, loved Jesus, followed Jesus, but when he died, refused to acknowledge that he was, in fact, the Messiah. He was just another great rabbi. And Paul's trying to say, no, no, no. This Jesus is the Son of God. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies that we have been hearing and anticipating and dying to have come true. He has come. He is here. Next, we're told that Jesus was born under the law. I think we get so caught up in the, the beauty of Christmas Eve and the magic of Christmas songs that we know and love and the candlelight and the presents and all these things that we forget how remarkably undignifying it is or was for Jesus to have been born into the humanity that he has created. The God of the universe who exists outside of the confines of, of certainly humanity, but even time and space, chose to enter the limitations of time and space and humanity. He chose to be troubled as we are, to be tempted as we are, to go through all of the pains of life that we go through. He chose to do that out of a love for us. And it's easy to forget how demeaning the birth of Christ actually is to the God of the universe. Right? But yet he sends his son to be born under the law. He was born, in other words, to bear the same standard that God applies to all of us. Right? If you obey my commandments, you will have life. If you fail to obey my commandments, you will have death. 
All of us have failed so far to obey those commandments. And so our, our deserved fate is death, eternal death and torment. And so Jesus is born into that same standard. He's born under the law. If Jesus had sinned, same fate, right? But he didn't. That's the difference. He actually is the only one to have been born that bore fully the standard which God had set. And so we have this one person who doesn't deserve to die. And so where sin causes us to stand guilty in front of the Father, Jesus is the one to have ever lived who stood innocent. And the final piece and the reason he came was in order to redeem us out from under the law. That's the last part of Paul's statement here. He was the fulfillment of the law that we could not fulfill. He obeyed in a way, in a place in which we rebelled against the Father. And I say this all the time. God's grace is not just to wipe away sin. When we say God is gracious to you, it's, it doesn't mean that God just overlooks your sin or wipes it away or sweeps it under the rug or chooses to forget or live and let live like the beautiful signs that Hobby Lobby say that we like to put on our doors. When, when it talks about the grace of the Father, it is the fact that the Son bought and paid for you. There's no sin being swept under the rug. It was handled. Right? There's no debt that was canceled. It was paid. It's not like your mortgage lender called you up that night and said, hey, we're just not going to ask you for it anymore. No, it's as if someone, you get a call from them and say, someone who wants to be anonymous paid for your mortgage. You don't owe it anymore. The debt was settled. And he fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill so that we might have life in him. And the result is that we, while we once were separated from God, we now get to be, as Paul says, considered to be children. The Bible uses this metaphor of adoption to talk about how God redeems us. He uses the metaphor of adoption all throughout Scripture. And he does this because in biblical times, sons had rights. There are certain rights and privileges that were enjoyed by the, by the child that were not enjoyed by anybody else, by servants or by, you know, uh, by, by children of, of other wives or thirdborns or whatever. There, there, there are all these hierarchical ways that the Hebrews t talked about Airing and privileging in the way that things were passed down and the rights that the firstborn had versus the secondborn and all this stuff. He says that you get to become children of God, right? If you were a son, that meant a couple things back then. For one, you received the Holy Spirit and he causes our hearts to cry, Abba, Father, as Paul says. We get to call God Dad. Whereas in before, we were alienated and separate. And the short of it is this, we, we just get to call him our dad. That's what Abba means. Abba literally is like, not father, but daddy. Right? It is an endearing way of calling upon the Lord. And that's why it's a, a cry that Paul tells us we only get when we are in Christ. That's not a privilege, right? Graham likes to call me Vince at home sometimes. It drives me bonkers. And every time we do it, we're never mad at him because it's my name. I'm not going to yell at my kid for calling my name. But it's a little weird. So we kind of try, like, listen, Graham, like, you, you to, to, to you, I'm, I'm dad or daddy or yes, father. Right? <laughs> I leave that part out. Right? But, and that's special because no one else gets to call me that other than you and Aaron. Like the neighbor kid down the street doesn't get to call me daddy. 
Only you get to do that, right? And, and Graham and Aaron, as my children, they have certain privileges from me because I'm their dad. It means that I provide for them, that I care for them, that I protect them, that I plan aspects of their life. It means that I seek to prosper my children, right? What parent doesn't seek to prosper their children? It means I, I set them up as much as I can for the future and I instill values into them. And I, I do things that sometimes are painful because I know it will ultimately cause them to grow. I nurture and shape them. It also means that I would go to any length to protect my kids. I would die for my kids. I never used to understand that until I had some of my own. How a parent could say I would die for, for a child. But it's second nature now. I wouldn't even think about it. Right? If there's a bus coming and it's me or him, guess what? It's me. Hello, Jesus. There's privileges that come when you are the son of a father. And when we become adopted sons of God again through Christ, we get to return to this. We get to call God Abba, Daddy, and we get to enjoy the privilege of him being our dad. The second part of the equation is that as sons, as Paul tells us, not just are we sons, not just do we have the privilege of the things that dad gets to bestow upon us, but there's also the sense of an heir, right? That's why he ends when he looks at seven. So you are no longer a slave but son, and if a son, then an heir through God, right? If you're a son, that means you have an inheritance. And by the way, this isn't exclusive of daughters. It's just the way that biblical language works. So when I say sons, here's sons and daughters. So the ladies here are like, I own inheritance too. Right? Don't worry. You are part of this as much as anybody. Right? right now, Graham's inheritance, if I were to, if Britta and I were to eat it tonight, would be, you know, some some retirement savings, some some investments, uh, whatever is in our checking account, and a, and a mortgage. Um, that's what <laughs> and a house that goes with it. I'm not, I'm not a savage. You get the house too. But that's kind of what they would get. That's their inheritance. If we die, they get everything we have. If we are heirs of God, think about this. God owns everything. If you are a son of God, through the work, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, if you are a son or a daughter of God, and God owns everything, what is your inheritance? Everything. That we live eternal life and we never want for anything on the other side of this life. We live under a God who we cry out to in any need we have and he provides endlessly, boundlessly, lavishly, forever. That's what the gospel is. This and this alone is why we rejoice and celebrate Christmas Eve. Because once we were strangers, once we were slaves, but then a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. And the governments and the rule and reign and all the, the worries about how things are going to go were placed upon his shoulder. He is the one who bore them. That's why when he says, take my yoke upon you, my, my burden is what? Light. If we go in his ways... He's the one who carries the hard stuff. And we get to be his children. And in our need, we get to cry out, Abba, Father. And this child was really born, and the government really does rest upon his shoulders. And we might not see it today in the strife of the world, but that day is coming when he shall rule and reign. 
He came the first time as an innocent baby. He's not coming back that way. We're not celebrating another baby birth story when Jesus comes again. We're going to cower in respect and awe, in fear, in a holy fear, as a king comes riding on a white horse to conquer and to bring a peace that shall never end. That is what we celebrate on Christmas Eve. That is why we gather here at night when we could be doing other things. And so how do we respond to such a gift, such a a beautiful ruler, such a kingdom? We cry out because that's what children do. And that's all they can do. It's beautiful to watch the innocence of a really small child because they can do nothing for themselves. My youngest is, is learning to communicate, but it's so rudimentary. We spend half our time trying to figure out what she wants. So when she needs something, she just cries. It's not because she's angry. It's because she needs to be heard and understood. Right? In our time of need, in our time of sorrow, in our time of deep darkness, we can cry out to God like a child. The Holy Spirit through when we come to be under him, under his rule and reign, we get to the Holy Spirit and he imparts in us this cry that we don't otherwise get to have. And we get to cry that cry to a dad who otherwise wouldn't listen if it weren't for Jesus' intervention. But he is our dad and we are an heir and we are sons and daughters of Christ. So in the darkness, we cry out, Abba, Father. We simply cry to God. That's all he desires from us. That in all of our decisions and all of our hopes and all of our dreams, we would seek out the Lord and cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, help me through this. Abba, help me understand. Abba, help me grieve. Help me process. Abba, help me what's, understand what's next. Help me know where you want me to go. Because I think like a child and you are my father. That's the promise of this night. That's why we celebrate the birth of the Savior. That's why we gather around the Christ candle. Because into the midst of darkness, when there was no hope, a great light was shown. So that great light begins with the Christ candle and grows from there. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the only source of light that we have. The Christ child. So this evening as we rise and we sing and we gather together to lift our candles high, that is the thought that we ought to have in the back of our minds. That is the way that we should be praising. We should be thinking about the one who enables us to call out Abba, Father. In a moment when we've lit our candles, I'll pray and we'll, we'll gather together and get things dark and sing silent night. I want to invite you just to pass the light backwards as we end each verse just to raise your candles high. I'm going to try not to extinguish mine as I walk.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through the birth of your son that we celebrate tonight, we get to call you dad. So often in this world, we feel like strangers. We feel like we don't know where to go or where to turn or who to call upon or whose advice to seek or where to take our next steps. We lack a hope. So, Father, this night we praise you that in you a light has shone, a hope has been found. We rejoice in that truth as we sing together and lift our voices. And all of God's people said together, Amen.